0: And we just sit here as pastors on the hot seat and let you uh, ask away. And we, and we provide an opportunity prior to that uh, for people to email in their questions. And, and this has been a wonderful, wonderful year uh, that way. We've had six wonderful questions come in that we're going to start with. And uh, just before we do, I'm going to say, maybe I'll get Jeremy to say a prayer for he and I as we as we wade into some of these really, really challenging questions. But just to say that we as pastors, uh, you know, while we set ourselves up on this sort of hot seat for this hot seat scenario, we don't see ourselves as some kind of oracle or some kind of answer person from God, right? We We have lots of, and you clearly don't see us that way either, right? right? Uh, we see ourselves as people on the journey with you. We don't want to be in any way on a pedestal uh, where we don't know things. We'll, we'll just humbly do things. Christians don't do this, but we'll, we'll do it. We'll say we don't know. Uh, we'll just humbly say we don't know if you, if you stump us. And we'll just let you in on our honest wrestlings with things as well. So we're just people on a journey with you, and, and we're going to really facilitate a discussion around some of these challenging things. Jared, you want to pray for us?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Let's pray. Father, yeah, again, we just welcome you in this place. We we humbly declare that you are the, the one with the answers. And uh, that we are, in the best way that we can, looking and seeking to glorify you the best ways that we can. But we do recognize that we are sinful humans. We recognize our weaknesses. We recognize our frailties, our biases, our worldviews that may be in direct opposition to you and your word. and So we don't want to declare personal perfection because we know, Jesus, you are the only perfect example and model. But in humility, we submit ourselves to your will. May our answers be seasoned with love. May your presence be in this place, that as answers come that may not sound maybe the same as what we're expecting or what we have traditionally viewed, may all of our conversation be seasoned with your love, and with this understanding that we are on this journey together as a community, not as two leaders telling everybody else how to do things, but as a community together, there is a community hermeneutic, a community understanding of what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus in Canada today. And so, God, we do. We ask, Holy Spirit, come into this place. Be known to us. Give us the words. May the gifts of the Spirit be alive and active here in this place. In your awesome name, amen. 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 Amen.
0: Great. So one of the first questions that uh, came in was... Was this. Now, the question came in with uh, some scripture references and, a, and a, a bit more depth in the way I'm presenting it here. But uh, the basic question was, and this is from Jacob, uh, how important is the geographic land of Israel in? God's plans for the future. And we know that this is something that a lot of people uh, wrestle with. It's something that's wrestled with even in, in particular in American media and American politics and to some degree in, in Canadian politics. Uh, what do you do with the scriptures around Israel and, and what might be uh, in the future for, for that nation and, and, and its special relationship with God or does it have a special relationship with God? All kinds of questions around it. And uh, the first uh, thought that that I had when when I heard this question, immediately was, "Well, what what business of it is mine? <laughs> How is this my business, right?" Uh, just just a, just a first question, first thought that came through, like uh, Israel and having a special relationship uh, with God. If if that's true that that nation does have a special relationship with God, and the land is is precious here, me in Canada. You know, that's way above my pay grade, right? That's way above my pay grade. So, so one, I approach this question with uh, with a certain amount of humility, but uh, the thoughts that, that sort of ruminate for me are uh, coming around who God is and who humanity is uh, to God. Um, he wants a relationship with all of us. Uh, Jesus died on the cross for our sins, and so with that incredibly large, inclusive vision for God to reach the Jews and the Gentiles, then what does that all mean to it? How does that speak to that question? And I came to Romans 2, uh, verse 25, which reads like this, circumcision has value if you observe the law. But if you break the law, you've become as though you had not been circumcised. A person is not a Jew who is only one outwardly, nor is circumcision Merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. And and, and just with that in mind, uh, a recognition that God... uh, as, as always, when we see this in the Old Testament and the New Testament, God looks on the outs- or on the heart while we look on the outside. We look at the land and we look at the politics and we look at the people. But God is really looking for a people of the heart. And so if God is looking for people of the heart, then how do we relate to another nation? And, and if we're called to love and if we're called to uh, support uh, people, if someone does injustice against the people of Israel then we stand against that injustice, right? And if someone does injustice, if, if Israel does injustice in the world, then what do we do? We stand against that injustice. That we as Christians are called to also see uh, real actions and the heart. So as for that, how that special relationship uh, with God and Israel and how that works again, I, I don't really know how that works this is again pastor saying i don 't really know, but what I do know is that God is calling us to uh, preach the gospel everywhere we go i 've been in israel i 've been on a beach in Tel Aviv uh, near near the sea there uh, talking with uh, with Israeli people uh, just just walking down the beach, and and I've been in Jerusalem, and I've been in the Arab Quarter, and I've been in Bethlehem, and I've been in the West Bank, and I've been uh, in Gaza. I've been all over uh, over Israel, and and I know that that is a nation where it is absolutely a mix, that there are a lot of people in that nation who don't recognize God at all in the heart. It's a secular nation. There are Arabs in that nation, and there are Jews in that nation, and some are Orthodox and some are not, and some are atheists, that it's a mix. And so I feel about Israel what I feel about Canada. That's an important nation to God. And I feel about Israel what I feel about China and Russia and, and, and everywhere else, that it's an important place uh, for God. And that the people there need to hear the gospel. So,
1: there. Mm-hmm. Awesome.
0: <laughs> yeah, we don't need to <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: Yeah, great. Now, the next question that came in, um, on the screen, it shows, if all scripture is God-breathed, how come we interpret some parts literally and some parts we don't seem to follow at all? Um. And there were two additional scriptures that were given as the subsequent examples of why we don't, why, or the question was, why are we not interpreting 1 Corinthians 14, 34 to 35 and 1 Timothy two, twelve. And so I'm going to answer the first question and then out of that I'm going to lead into the specific examples of those two verses and why it is that we as interpreters are trying to um, Come to an understanding of what the text means. And to do that, let me give you an example. Now, by no means am I giving this as an equivalent to the Word of God, the Word spoken of God. If we were to say right now, if I were to say to you that Aaron is cool, and you were to lying. He'd be <laughs> lying. that's be lying. So, if I were to say that, and you were to write that down, and a thousand years from now, you were to roll that up on a piece of paper, and you were to leave it in your seat, and a thousand years from now, they'd dig up this place— and they read the words "Aaron is cool." They're trying to get an understanding of what that means. Now we know what that means. Now maybe um, it might be debatable. I'm not Way sure. Way debatable. Way debatable. I think you're cool. I think you're a cool guy. Oh, thanks, chair. Yeah, no problem. Yeah. Um, so I think that we have this these words, right? And we know that it could mean multiple things. It could mean that he's cool, as in he's he's hip, he's up with the times. He is cold, he's freezing, it can mean a variety of different things. It can mean something that is ongoing, it can mean something that is a temporary thing. And so when we read different things from outside of our current worldview, we have to be careful as a reader and as an interpreter that we're trying to understand, so we're trying to pull back the bigger picture and understand maybe what other things were written about Aaron at the time. How was Aaron thought of in the community? We would try to understand within that context, but there would still be this this sense of a process that you would have to take to try to understand what does that text actually mean. And so when we come to passages like 2 Timothy um, 3.16, where it says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness— We do believe, yes, and we do uphold the inerrancy of Scripture. And that Scripture is to be taken literally if that's what the context demands, is that it is a literal context. But you can't be 100% literalist when you approach Scripture. You just can't be. And interpreters are not literalists when they approach Scripture. Many times when you read in your Bible... Um, We don't often do this, but if you read the introduction of your Bible, you will come to an understanding of how the interpreters, how the scholars, how those who are reading the original text came to an understanding and how they interpreted that. And so in many cases, you're going to get situations where you have hundreds of scholars working out the context of a particular passage, working together, wrestling together, talking about wording, talking about the cultural implication of the fact that The Bible was not written to a Canadian context. It was written to a Jewish context or a Greek context. And so we cannot immediately just jump to or put our own particular modern worldview, North American worldview, back into the text. That's called eisegesis, when you're putting something into the text, a meaning into the text, in order to get what you want out of it. So it really becomes an interpreter's task to be disciplined and to be honest with the text. And that's called exegesis, where you're allowing the text to speak for itself. A text cannot mean what it never meant. (laughs) And you have to be very careful and very honest as you approach that. And so a literalist would not go to poetry within the Bible and treat that poetry in a literal way. Because we would understand contextually that that's poetry. And so therefore you don't treat it that way. And so we have lots of implications and challenges that that brings. But literalists um, that really strongly uphold that, and I, and I get the reason why they really want to, to hold on to and protect this literal understanding of the text, is because of this mentality of the slippery slope. And that's just this idea that if we give even a little bit of movement within the text, that that is going to lead, A is going to lead to B, lead to this, lead to this, and then the snowball is going to get bigger and bigger and bigger, and then we're going to have an absolute heretical meltdown because we've started with one little change or one slight nuance. We've got all of a sudden a catastrophe on our hands, and what that is is a protectionist idea that's based on fear, not based on faith. Yes, we need to uphold the inerrancy of Scripture. But in order to do that, we need to have integrity. We need to be interpreters who have integrity. And that's often not part of the discussion. We will stress the importance of how perfect and awesome the Bible is in its literal context. But we won't hold ourselves accountable to how we interpret that. And I think that is Very, very important. That is a part of a process. That's why we come together in community. That's why we would encourage things like Home Church. Encourage you to be sharing and talking about your your beliefs, your worldview, your perspectives. Because when the Bible reads us, it has the potential. It is God breathing. It is living. It is this potential to change us at its core, at our core. Whenever you approach a text, I don't know about you, but I've read passages of Scripture that I've known from childhood. And you read them, and you read them, and you read them, and you read them, and then all of a sudden a light turns on one day. (laughs) And you realize, oh my goodness, this is speaking to me. It's not as though the the fundamental context of that text changed. It's just that in the moment, it is a God-breathed book that speaks to us in the moment, in a situation It is a living active. It is not just a theological principle of protectionism that we have to guard against. And so now we come to these a couple examples. And the first example is that women should remain silent in church. In 1 Timothy 2.12, I do not permit a woman to teach. Why do we not treat these literally? And so the challenge for us, based on what I'm saying, is for us to look at the text with integrity to examine the text, to examine what is happening culturally in the time period, what is exa- what is happening um, in other extra-biblical texts within our culture, what is happening within church polis. So there was lots of writings within the Jewish community about how communities should be operated and how they should be run. Um, the danger in having this protectionistic view when we look at these contexts is again, it's motivated by fear. What is the, the worst that can happen? If, if we allow women to teach in church, and you, you'll go online if you read some websites that are coming from a, this perspective of a slippery slope, they'll say that if we allow a, a woman to teach in a church or to speak, therefore the next thing that's going to happen is the next week, everybody's going to be just coming in, we'll be playing cards on Sunday, um, well, maybe we'll start even meeting. That was between
0: Christmas and New Year's. That was
1: last week. I'm sorry. Yeah, that's right. Well, maybe we'll start meeting in movie theaters, like places of sin, maybe. And this snowball happens. This, what the effect that ends up happening is we start looking down the road of fear. And you'll see online in a couple sites where there's this fear that we have to protect the sanctity of the literal scripture. Um, because we're scared of something happening. But an interpreter, when they look at the text, has to understand what that text mean in its particular context. And we have to understand that in the early church, one of the main problems was false teaching. That women were being um, manipulated by false teachers. Um, It says in the text in multiple occasions, I don't have time to go through each and every example, but I'd be happy to share that information with you, of women who were being taken advantage of. But we also read from scripture that there were plenty of men teaching falsely within the early church. So, do we think that Paul would allow them to speak in church and not a woman? Absolutely not. He would ask them to be silent as well. And so here we have an example as well where Paul is actually teaching something that's actually pushing, progressing forward from a lot of the ancient Near Eastern religions at the time that treated women like they were not even worth or not even capable of learning. Are growing or being a part of society anyway they they were treated essentially like lesser humans or not even human or trash in society property. as property yeah, and so we have this context of where Paul is saying, but I do permit the a, a woman to learn in this context yes there's false teaching yes you must have questions yes you're you're being manipulated by people around you and you're not in a learning environment within your community or in your society, but I I do want you to learn. I want you to grow. And so here in the scripture, we have a redemptive faith-filled belief that women are contributors to the people of God. They are participators and active participators in the kingdom. And For that reason, I hold this opinion, and you'll hear two theories, uh, complementarianism and egalitarianism. I'm an egalitarian, but I also push the scriptures that say that we are to consider others better than ourselves. Women are included in the prophetic gifts, and Paul says elsewhere that prophetic gifts are even more important to the church than teaching. And women are encouraged to use their prophetic gift in church. And so if we take a literalist view that what Paul is saying here is that they're for all time not permitted to speak, then why would he say elsewhere that within the prophetic gift, it's okay for you to speak? It's okay for you to sing hymns. He says, brothers and sisters, when you use these gifts, use them for the benefit of the entire church. The complementarian view, and I'm just going to wrap up with this note And and this is something that I'm wrestling with personally right now. One of the arguments that they'll say is that because of the urgency of the gospel, it's okay for a woman to teach in particular examples where they're teaching children or in mission situations where they're teaching people on the other side of the world. But if you're a literalist, a man is a man is a man. And whether you're teaching a man in North America or whether you're teaching a man in Africa, you can't draw a difference there. A man is a man. And so what I find to be incredibly dangerous, from my perspective, is how we have then lifted ourselves above the context and we have decided for ourselves ourselves when and where women should be able to use their gifts. And I believe that women should be free and encouraged to use their gifts within our community in all of its forms. If you are a false teacher within our community, we'll talk. (laughs) We'll have that conversation first. But if you can teach a man in Africa, you can teach a man here. And so for the women who are in this place... I just pray the gift of the Spirit over you. Freedom. Freedom in Jesus' name. You are invited to lead in our community.
0: Yeah. Cool. Amen. Um, We'll, just, we'll go on to our, our next question. I should just say, though, there may be some of these things may really touch on some really deeply held beliefs that you, that you might have, someone you may passionately disagree with an answer that Jeremy and I are giving. And I yeah. just want to say there's definitely permission for you to disagree with us in this community. Um, you know, you can come and talk to us, and we can have discussion and conversation about those things and let it be a, let it be a dialogue. So lots of love and respect flowing uh, back and forth. But if if you disagree with me, we'll beat you. <laughs> it's totally not true. <laughs> uh, the, the, the next question that comes uh, is, uh, this question came from Brent, and, and he sent it in an interesting way. I actually, I should have probably contacted him to, to see how to frame the question, but he sent me a, a really interesting letter that was written from uh, the head of the Islamic Association of North America or something like that. And it was a letter just sort of reaching out to uh, North American Christians and basically kind of saying in 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 a very friendly way, hey, we respect Jesus, Allah, and God, kind of the same dude it 's all good it 's all okay and he 's like so what do you what do you think about this and, and so I, I worded the question like this, and i hope i I'm, I'm, uh, 've worded it in a way that 's true to what you 're really asking there, but how should we interact with Muslims in our communities, and how do we respond to those who claim we worship the same God they do right obviously uh, the the topic of islam and and, and Muslim people in canada and, and around the world Europe. And the Middle East, of course, is a huge, huge issue um, in terms of discussion. Uh, But how do we relate to uh, people in our neighborhoods and in our workplaces? I thought it would make it a little bit more personal. Um, The first thing that that came to mind as I was pondering that question was actually um, Luke chapter 10. and, And that's just the story of the Good Samaritan and And that sort of uh, context uh, that Jesus gives when he's talking about the kingdom of God right jesus is always talking about the kingdom of God, and what he says is he he says he's at, well he's asked by a teacher of the law who says uh, what what is written in the law how, how do you read it and Jesus answered or that, sorry, the uh, Jesus says this and and this the uh, the Pharisee answers, "Love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul." with all your strength and with all your mind and love, your neighbor is yourself. And Jesus immediately launches into uh, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And that parable, of course, just unpacks uh, what God really thinks about how we love. It really unpacks the question of how we uh, relate to people. So if uh, a Russian person is your neighbor, do you love them? yeah. And if a, a Jewish person is your neighbor, do you do you love them? Do you invite them over? Do you do relationship with them? Do you help them cut their grass or shovel their snow? If you have a shared driveway, do you shovel, shovel their half sometime? Yeah. If your if your neighbor is a, a Muslim person, do you love them? Do you invite them over for dinner? Do you uh, shovel their walkway? Do you cut their grass? Yeah, absolutely. That, that, that's how you love. But at the same time, uh, in our culture is this uh, growing need to, uh, in in a way, bring peace between uh, religious groups, this sort of pluralistic approach to culture. Whatever you believe, it's all okay, it's all good. Um, But we would say that Christians believe something distinctly different than what Muslims believe. So there's a difference between us loving someone and being committed to them in relationship and caring for them, and into how we interact with uh, their beliefs and and what they believe. Uh, have any of you read the the Quran? A few, a few of us have read the the Quran in the group. I've read the Quran. I, I read it in high school and I read it again in my in my mid-twenties, wanting to sort of wrestle with this question. I'd traveled to Egypt, and I'd been in some places where where Islam is the dominant religion. I'd visited Israel and seen it from the perspective of Arab Christians, so I'd spent quite a bit of time in the West Bank. And I wanted to really wrestle with the question of of what Muslims believe and, and who they are. And so I read the Quran trying to understand it. And what I came to understand in reading the book is that it is not the same God that we worship at all. That it, it, Islam is something that presents itself and stands against the knowledge of the true God. It stands against the knowledge of God and who he is. And so I, I, I just was kind of, uh, I read 2 uh, Corinthians, this, this came to mind as well, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, 4-6. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. So that's just a note to me to think, okay, we can fight with love, right? Not bombs. That might be okay. We can have a discussion about that another time. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. And we will be ready to punish every act of disobedience once your obedience is complete. And so uh, Paul, in this case, is talking more about his personal relationship and personal holiness. But there are external thoughts that present themselves against the knowledge of God. And that's why we do apologetics, and that's why we do discussion, and that's why we try to lead people uh, into relationship with Jesus. We have this phenomenal call. Uh, at the end of the book of Matthew, this great commission that says, go ye into all the world and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded. And here's this word obedience again that we just read in Second Corinthians uh, chapter 10, that while we love and while we have dinner with our neighbors and while we care for them when they're in the hospital and while we shovel their driveways, we also have an agenda To love them towards the love of Christ. To love them towards the love of God. To love them to a true understanding of Jesus and who he is. And my interactions with Muslims uh, over the years, uh, with uh, Elaine's uh, contractor, Billy even, just very, very brief interaction. Uh, You know, he was, Billy was talking and and Elaine was sharing this story uh, about um, asking her for prayer and, and Billy's family actually showed up in, in our prayer request uh, list that goes out in our email newsletter and what she said about Billy is she said you know Billy doesn't go to his Muslim friends to ask for prayer <laughs> he comes to the Christians for that and, and there's, there's a distinct difference there isn't there about the God that Billy seeks to connect with uh, in our community from the God that he sees Allah as uh, a God of law, a God of vengeance, a God of violence, in some cases a God of justice, but not necessarily a God of mercy and a God of love, and certainly not the depth of the compassion and grace and forgiveness that we see in Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for our sins. So distinct difference there. We act in love with an agenda to love towards Christ. Is that, is that helpful, at all? Cool.
1: Great. Yeah, that actually leads into perfectly into uh, the next question. Uh, the question, two of them really, and I'll, I'll answer them together very briefly, but how can we support Christ's claims of ex- in exclusiveness without being labeled as intolerant and are Christians hiding from evangelistic effort in the hope of being accepted by society? So we're labeled as intolerant for two reasons. One is because people are presented with the truth of Jesus Christ, and they refuse it. They just flat out reject it. Um, that's the first reason. So they're presented with that truth, and they, they just won't accept it. The second reason is because we're actually being intolerant. Um, and we need to be very, as I said before in my last answer, we need to be very open and honest and accountable to that. We have a history of intolerance in our country. We have a history of intolerance in our world intolerance that was done in the name of Jesus. And so we need to recognize that, be honest about that, um, talk openly and truthfully about that, and realize that in redemption, there is room for healing. And so we need to give people that space. There are many people who have been genuinely hurt by the church. Um, and, And many of the times... The claims that we make, that we say are exclusive claims and are a part of the gospel of Jesus Christ are not, it's not good news at all. It's judgment, it's racism, it's um, the lack of support and care for the poor. It comes across in many different ways where we allow a worldview to supersede the teachings of Jesus Christ. When he says to love and take care of our world, to give ourselves up for our neighbor, our neighbors, to love our enemies. These are claims of the gospel, claims of our Savior, and we need to be very clear that we need to obey them. So I do not condone in any way pepper-spraying Muslim groups who are gathering. Um, I, as a church leader, condemn actions like that. I condemn ISIS for what they are doing to Christians and other Muslims in the Middle East, but I condemn religious groups that in the name of Jesus are racist and should not be doing what they're doing, and they are disobeying very clearly the teachings of Jesus Christ. And so I condemn that, not in the name of conservatism, not in the name of liberalism, not in any kind of partisanship, but because it is clear in the teaching of Jesus Christ that we are to love one another. And that is the exclusive claim of Jesus being the way, the truth, and the life. That there's no other way to Jesus Christ but through him. Not through our worldviews. Not through our perspectives. Not because we can mark on a checklist that we've got it all figured out. But because we have humbly submitted to the lordship of Jesus Christ. And in our lives we say, Jesus, change me, shape me. I am yours you are my king, you guide me, you direct me. And so that process must include honesty, it must include accountability. So again, another shameless plug for home church, another shameless plug for being engaged with other people is to say that you can't do that process alone, it is not private. It is not exclusive in the sense that we go off into our sanctuaries in our private lives, it becomes an individual faith. If you are not openly sharing your faith, of course nobody's going to challenge it. Because <laughs> nobody knows what you believe. Nobody knows where you're at. So continue to share, continue to talk, have conversations, support one another in love, care for one another, correct one another as the word of God is God-breathed. That it is for correction, is for reproof. It is not a scary thing. It is an accountability thing. that we all have something to learn and grow in and to repent of. And so, as we approach this world and those claims, as Aaron was saying perfectly with with the Muslim community, love them, they're our neighbors, love them, care for them, as Christ would. No, we do not agree with their theology, no, we may not agree with their ideals, but love your neighbors, care for them, honor God, but obey his commandment (laughs) to take care of those around you. And if you come across people who are intolerant and do not accept Jesus in you, which Scripture teaches that it's not you, it's it's the living Jesus in you that they're rejecting. So if they come and you present to them the gospel of Jesus Christ in loving form and are caring, and they spit in your face, then it's okay to give yourself permission. I mean, in patience and love and prayerfully consider, but, but it, it's also okay to give yourself permission to say, this is not the right season, I don't need to take the abuse that's coming my way. And you can shake the dust off your feet. And come back into community to receive the love that you get from Christian brothers and sisters. And to be replenished and re and rejuvenated so that you can go back into the world again. And share the love of Jesus Christ to to those that you meet. Um, And so that would kind of be how I would approach it. But this again, this idea of this separation and privatization that's happening around the world is something that is based on fear. It is not something that I believe is based on faith. It is based on this idea that if if we let them in, they're going to destroy us all. Um, We go with risk every day of our lives. It would be the same reason that if you're afraid of flying, you're not going to get on an airplane. Um, Fear is paralyzing. It will prevent you from doing something. But a psychologist, a teacher, a leader would say, you know what? Instead of thinking about it that way, educate yourself. (laughs) Learn about how an airplane works. Learn about it. Understand the parts, what happens, the sounds. Educate yourself. And so if you're hearing things from people who are coming that are encouraging privatization and that we need to separate ourselves, that we need to hide in our bunkers, um, before this, as this world is being overwhelmed, educate yourself. Really listen, because God is saying something that's that's pretty unique here, and we have an exciting missional opportunity within our country that even though we're in a post, post-Christian culture, we're in a missional culture. God is alive and well and at work, and what an exciting time for him to be calling us to be uh, right now. And so, Carlton Place... Ottawa, all of that. This is our mission field, folks. Let, let's just go out there and give, give glory to God and, and help in any way we can.
0: And just to add, I mentioned this last week as well. Um, you know, I really, I really felt like as praying You know, every year, you know, as we come into a new year, I pray into, you know, what's God, what does God have for us in 2016? And I really felt like God really saying to me in a strong way that we need to learn how to push the pedal in terms of evangelism as a community what does that really mean for us as people uh, that word is a word that sort of terrifies us i mentioned that last week right but what does it mean for us to really uh do that in in a god-honoring uh way that's going to make an impact in the world how do we do evangelism in this culture in this time really important questions for us to dig into in the next uh, in the upcoming months so that's cool Um, So this is the the next one, and we're we're tight on time, but this is a a really challenging question that came uh, came in as well. I threw it up on Facebook, and I I actually left out the, the bit about the LGBTQ community. Because I thought, man, I just don't want to have a giant discussion on our Facebook wall about it uh, with with anybody. But how do we love those that the Bible would traditionally call sinners? And and uh, in particular, the question was framed in the email as it came to how do we how do we love uh, homosexual people? How do we care for them? And, and how do we relate to, to that community, which is uh, which is enormously challenging? Uh, I think the first thing to 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 throw in the mix is to remind us again about the story of the Good Samaritan, which this seems to be like Good Neighbor Sunday, really. Actually, this all these questions are are sort of uh, speaking into that. Um, in the same way, we we would relate to our our Jewish neighbor or our Muslim neighbor, right? The, a tremendous flow of love. Now, this is something that I, as a pastor, uh, have encountered a, a number of times, like. Uh, more than I can really count in ministry, where I've had somebody come up to me and say, I'm wrestling with same-sex attraction, or I'm, I'm, I'm a gay person. Would I be able to be a part of of your church, of your community? And uh, the very first thing I do in every single one of those uh, circumstances, and you've heard me say this before, is I'll take that person and I will, I will maybe grab their hands and I will, because, because they, they, they have to be, in, in some cases it's, it's actually an offensive, it's, a, it's actually an aggressive thing that they're approaching with, but in most cases it's, it's required quite a lot of courage for them to come and speak to a pastor about this, right? Uh, in which case I, I'll gra- I've grabbed their hands and, and looked them in the eye and said, I want you to look in my eye, I want you to see that I, I love you. I want you to be able to really see that I see you as a person, that I love you with the love of Christ, that I really, really care for you. And, and then the discussion goes on, and where that discussion is is always centered around, at least when, when I'm having that discussion, and I'm working with a number of people on this now, I'm working with somebody in, in Europe on this now coaching a, a leader in another church uh, who's, who's wrestling with sexual identity questions. Um, where, it, where it revolves around, for the most part, is the, similar to this question we talked about with Muslims, is how we love. Is how we love. Because if we're people who really believe in the kindness and goodness and generosity of God and goodness of God, and we also believe the scriptures to be what Jeremy talked about earlier, uh, words that are written as uh, divinely inspired Word of god you can 't read the scriptures with with almost any hermeneutical approach without coming away with the idea that god doesn 't think that homosexuality is the is the best plan for people 's lives you You have to read the scriptures if you 're reading them honestly and see that God sees that as, as missing the mark. And I want you to know that I don't want it to say that. I want to be a more progressive person than that. But if I'm led by the scripture, I want to be cool pastor, right? It would be really cool to be cool pastor in our culture if I could just say, yeah, it's all good. Homosexuality is all good. It's perfectly fine. That's That's who I want to be. But, but the scriptures don't allow me to be that, and my conscience doesn't allow me to be that. But I still look in the eyes of, of, a, of a homosexual person that I'm in relationship with, and they have an undeniable sense that I love them from the heart. That I love them from the heart. And so the rest of our conversation is centered around how do I love them? If God is truly a loving and kind and gentle and caring God who cares for this person, but he doesn't see homosexuality as something that hits the mark for them in their life, then how is his saying that that is sin, then how is that an expression of his love? How does he love them? How is he loving them by, by saying that's, that, that's not okay for you? And that's where the theological discussion begins and that's where the, the moral discussion begins is how do we uh, wrestle with that question? Uh, how do I as a person love you in a way that still is leading you to, uh, to look at heterosexuality as an ideal in your life? How do I love you with that agenda, and and the first thing that I always do when I'm having this discussion with people, and I haven't seen a lot of relationships break down when I do this, is is I just ask for for permission. Say, is it okay if I don't believe this is okay, is the best for you? Can you still love me? Can you still respect me? Because it's, it's really, really unfair for somebody to demand how you love them isn't it? And that's, what the, that's what's happening in our culture, in our society, is it, it's being demanded that the church love people by the definition of outright unquestioning acceptance of every behavior. That's what's being demanded of the church. We're not really being asked to love with, with our agenda. We're actually being asked to love without our agenda. We're being asked to love with full acceptance, and actually not only full acceptance, but celebration. And so I always just ask for permission. Is it okay for you if I, if I don't believe that? Can you still believe that I love you that way? And then when you begin to unpack those questions around, then what could it mean if God loves you as a person, uh, but he doesn't love uh, a homosexual lifestyle for you? Why, why could that be loving? And and you get into these wonderful discussions, uh, you know, and and maybe I'm talking to people who are really wrestling with that here this morning. If you're you're a woman and you're wrestling with, uh, am I going to be in a same-sex relationship with another woman for my whole life? I mean, I want to wrestle with you over the question of what does it mean then for you to intentionally give up your natural fertility, your natural ability to to procreate and to have children you have to wrestle with those questions uh, of giving that possible best of gods up for you and if i'm talking to a man who's talking about being in a same-sex relationship then i'm then i'm caring for him as a person who who really cares about his his physical health like have you spoken with your physician about what the long-term effects of this behavior will be for you health-wise. I really care about you. Have you actually wrestled with this? And and, and we always come to this question about uh, the, the emotional, spiritual side of it, which, which really comes down to, you know, in every other area of your life, if you had an area that you were wrestling with or an area that was full of, of pain, we would say to you, you can overcome and you can go a different way. But in the area of same-sex attraction and, and involvement in, in those kinds of relationships, our culture absolutely says to you, that's just the way you are, you have to go with it. And there's a real disconnect there, isn't there? That's the one area where it, that is a, a sacred cow in our culture. If you have a same-sex attraction, that's who you are, just go with it, you have to go with it. And that is just flowing out there as though it's real living truth in the world. But we don't say that about anything else that a human being struggles with. We don't say that about anything else. We say, you can wrestle with this. Uh, God can deliver you, God can save you, God can help you, God can set you free. Uh, we say that. And so I, I always just say to, to a person, if you're wrestling with those questions around sexual identity or whatever, I really love you. I really care for you. Would, would it be okay if we just continued to wrestle together and maintain living in a place of the wrestling? Maintain living in a place of of, of questioning. And, and anybody who's wrestling with and questioning with things like that in their lives is absolutely welcome in our community. But if you're coming into community with an area of sin in your life, which could be absolutely any area of sin and the areas of sin that I struggle with, and I'm saying, I am not struggling with this area, but I demand that you as a community celebrate my love of donuts or whatever it is. Then that's an unfair thing to ask a community, isn't it? So we all come to the table and what unites us is the wrestle. And so it's always an, an invitation to walk together and always a, an invitation to wrestle uh, together. Is that, does that sound like that makes common sense? And it has to happen relationally. It has to happen in friendship. It has to happen in uh, the context of open eyes and open heart. Look in my eyes. Can you see that I care about you as a person? Can we be honest together? Can we walk together together? And so that's, uh, that's where we're at on that. Let's just say a prayer. Father, for all this is stirred up in terms of our thinking. For all of us is stirred up in terms of our wrestling. Uh, we just come back to this very foundational idea. We are all sinners desperately in need of grace. Every one of us is desperately in need of your grace. Desperately in need of your cross. That's what unites us. That's what brings us together. We make mistakes. We have fallen. We are broken. We need you, Jesus. Come and save us. Come and redeem us. We love you. We worship you. In Jesus' name, amen. Cool. Bless you all.